I think a lot of people, a lot of people ask me questions like, how can I overcome my fear at starting my own business? And I say, no, don't overcome it. Like you should heed that fear. <laughs> that's, that's a really good fear. You shouldn't ignore that. You shouldn't plug your ears and try to find a way to ignore it. I think it's better to address the things that are bothering you instead of trying to uh, leap over them, you know? So yeah, I dive into it. When I'm scared of something, uh, I dive into it and find out why. If something's getting me down, I dive into it. I, uh, I spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time journaling, sometimes hours a day. If I'm making uh, life decisions, I'll, I'm known to spend three to five hours a day just writing in my diary for days or months on end. So I think a, a lot of reflection. I think, a, I think some of what I've learned has, in life has come from input, but most of what I've learned in life has come from reflection. Today's Syndicate episode is brought to you guys by SendPro Online by Pitney Bowes. Shipping and mailing from your desk has never been simpler than with SendPro Online. They make it super simple. Click, send, save for as little as $4.99. That's $4.99 a month. Try it free for 30 days and get a free 10-pound scale when you visit pb.com angel. That's pb.com angel. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm cash and signing up. I love the Cash App. And coffee, seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. So Derek, you have the world's best quote, fuck yes or no. And I, I, we got to start there because I, I try to adopt that in ways where I can in my life. And we can bleep that out or have iTunes think about it however it wants. But where is the genesis of this phrase, first of all? The story behind it is I was at... I had said yes to go to a conference in Australia, even though I was living in New York City. And I think I had said yes to some other things. And then when it actually came down to it, I was just like, man, I don't really want to fly the 29 hours to Sydney to speak on stage for an hour. Why did I say yes to this thing? And then I realized that there were things in my life that I would rather do all the way instead of a few, instead of having a bunch of things that I'm half-assing. So I just realized that life would be better lived if we said no to almost everything so that your time was actually spacious and empty. And then when you found the occasional thing that you were really all in about, then you could just you'd have the, the space and the room in your life to actually dive into it. So, um, yeah, so it started with a, a conference in Australia that I had accidentally said yes to. And I did. So I ended up canceling the conference. They didn't care. They just found somebody else to sit on stage for an hour. And yeah, I realized that this should be applied in a lot of ways in life. 
But the key point is leaving your time empty so that you actually have spare empty time that you're not overcommitted. So that, yeah, when you do find something that's worth doing, you do have the space and time in your life to throw yourself into it completely. That said, ever since Tim Ferriss started quoting my hell yeah or no thing, and then like, I think he told it to some Silicon Valley types, and then pretty soon like the dude on Shark Tank was quoting hell yeah or no on TV. Ever since then, some people have told me like, hey man, I love this kind of hell yeah or no philosophy. I'm applying it to everything in my life. And I say, wait, no, hold on a second. It's a specific tool for a specific situation if you're overcommitted and overwhelmed. But like, I don't think that, uh, you know, a, a 22 year old straight out of college should be applying hell yeah or no to their entire life. Like there are times in your life where the best strategy is to say yes to everything because life can be like lottery tickets. You know, you never know what thing is going to hit. So buy them all. And hell yeah or no is more of a philosophy for when you're overwhelmed and overcommitted. It's a tool. It's a tool. And if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You got to be a little bit, got to be a little bit careful with that. <laughs> exactly. That is very cool. Speaking of the, the hammer, so to speak, you, you sold the business, CD Baby. You guys had the great email autoresponder. You had, there's all kinds of stories there. But what's life like after you sell a business that's kind of been your life? Oof. I was lost and not quite depressed, but maybe kind of like that definition of depression where I wasn't sad, but I was, uh, a it was hard to find something that felt worth doing. Also, my personal situation at the near the end, the last year or two of the company is I had 85 employees that reported pretty much directly to me. We didn't have much of a hierarchy. So I was feeling personally overwhelmed and sick of having responsibility. So for like the next year or two after I sold the company, I was actually legally looking into like how to disappear, like how to change my name, how to just go off the grid, just fuck off world, disappear. And I almost did it. I just thought it would be kind of really cool to just change my name and just become an open source programmer somewhere in, sitting in Switzerland, enjoying the quality of life and programming some open source projects for fun since I didn't need the money anymore and having no responsibilities. And I was on the verge of doing that because I really felt like my greatest achievements were behind me. I thought that my graves, I was, uh, how, let's see, how old was I? I was 36, 30, 30, uh, 38. I was 38. And I really thought my greatest achievements were behind me. Like my gravestone would say, here lies Derek Sivers, who made CD Baby and nothing since. <laughs> like I really thought like this was kind of how I thought life was going to play out. But then around that time, it took about a year and a half, two years, but I came up with a better goal. And yeah, but to answer your question, that's that's how it looks after selling something or getting rid of something that was your sole identity. Was that pre or post stoicism for, I guess, pre or since so stoicism for you? I know that's a big part of your life. Uh, I didn't even hear the word stoicism until I was in my 40s. But yeah, Tim Ferriss told me to read this book. And I was just like, I don't know, dude, so ancient Greeks, fuck that. And, <laughs> but I was like, all right, all right, you know me well. I read it. And to me, it stoicism was the way that I've already been living since I was a teenager. But I just thought this was my weird, quirky approach to life. I didn't know anybody else did this. I didn't know there was a name for it. I just thought this was like Derek's weird approach to life. So when I read uh, Guide to the Good Life, this stoicism book, when I was like 42, it was just this like, oh, my God, <laughs> somebody's thought about this stuff before. Somebody has like a, a reason for living this way. So, yeah, I thought it was just my quirky philosophy. 
Yeah. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say stoicism is a big part of my life. I don't really buy into any isms. And I think it's kind of creepy when people do. You know, I used to. Uh, sorry, you live in where do you live in Atlanta? Atlanta. Okay. I don't know if there's this yoga culture there, but I used to live in Santa Monica, California. And you'd see these people that would start doing yoga and then they would just feel this need to buy all in to the whole stuff around it. They'd start decorating their homes in a yoga kind of way and they'd say namaste a lot and they'd, you know, start drinking and eating different things in order to fit into some kind of... Lots of kombucha. Yes. (laughs) So, no, I never like buying into any isms. I pick little pieces that I like when I find things I like. But no, I'm not into stoicism. Speaking of buying into isms, that's one of the biggest problems we have. People are buying into all of their isms. So we have yep. very separate groups of isms. Yeah. And I don't know why there's there seems to be this need to do that. People want to be in a tribe and then they find one and they want this sense of belonging and identity to say, this is who I am. I'm a member of this tribe. I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Yeah, you've got a Linux and a Mac. That almost makes you like a terrible person in the eyes of actually, Apple. <laughs> even worse, I actually, my main operating system is OpenBSD, which is just, I've tried them all and this was my favorite. So I don't even use Linux. It's, it's really OpenBSD is my main. Interesting. You're alienating everybody. But Thank you. that's okay. You're a musician and you've, you've made it. So you're, you can kind of do that. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the the era of music back when you started CD Baby. What What's the story for people who don't know and how have you seen it all change? Okay, so the year was 1997. Amazon was a bookstore. That's all they sold were books. PayPal didn't exist yet. There were two or three websites online where you could buy music, which meant buying CDs. MP3s didn't exist yet. It was Music Boulevard and Tunes.com were the big, oh, sorry, CD Now. CD Now, Music Boulevard and Tunes.com were the big three online stores where people could buy music. But none of them would take your music if you were an independent musician. You had to like have a major record label deal and be all set through the major distributors. So as a musician in 1997, I looked at this scenario and said, well, this sucks. I can, I just want to sell my music directly. But because there was no PayPal, there was no Stripe or any of these services, the only way that you could accept a credit card payment on a website was to go through like three months of paperwork and $1,000 in setup fees to get a credit card merchant account. You had to incorporate, you had to have a separate bank account. They actually sent inspectors out to my location to make sure I was a valid business. It, yeah, it was a lot of work. So after three months of work, I had a credit card merchant account. And then it took a bunch of work to figure out the programming, the CGI bin Perl scripts in order to have a buy now button on my website. So after months of work, I had a buy now button on my website. And so my musician friends in New York City said, dude, could you sell my CD through your band's website? And I went, well, I guess like I, that's kind of weird, but sure. Okay. So I never intended to start a music store. I was really just selling my CD. But then friends told friends and then word passed around in New York and then in the independent music community. And within a few months, my little thing was like the largest seller of independent music on the web. And if you were a musician in 1998 to 2002, you wanted to sell your music online. There was basically one guy who could do it for you named Derek in New York. So um, my little hobby took off. It was a weird accident. And uh, yeah, it grew really fast. And pretty soon, like I said, I had like 85 employees, way more than I ever wanted. I never wanted to start a business. I really still thought of myself as a musician. And this stupid thing was a big distraction. So I did it for 10 years. In 2008, I was just personally 
sick of doing it. So I sold the company with lovely timing. I sold in August 2008. And then this little financial collapse happened after. So it's just really lucky timing. So I haven't haven't earned a dime since. And you sold the business. What was the deal with donating part or some to charity, a trust? Yeah, I wasn't going to be public about that. Um, oh, we don't have to if you don't want to. No, 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 no. It's it's too late now. I meant like, I, I didn't do that for the PR, but about a year or two after I sold, in some little interview, somebody said, so what'd you do with all the money? And I said, well, I gave it away. And so, yeah, here's the deal. Um, I sold the company for $22 million, which in my mind is more money than I'll ever need. I think in order to spend $22 million, you got to actually be a little bit stupid like to buy Lamborghinis or nine-bedroom houses or whatever it is. Yeah, that people not a do. logo on your shirt. You're falling way behind. <laughs> So yeah, I just didn't want the money. And so before I before the deal was done, there was like eight months in between uh, like a handshake deal with an agreed upon price and it eight months of paperwork with banks before the deal was all done. So in that eight months of time, my tax attorney uh, asked me that this question about the money about and I said, well, I'm just going to give it away anyway. Like there's no way I'm going to spend twenty two million dollars in my lifetime. He said, are you really serious about giving it away? I said, yeah, I'm just going to give it all to charity anyway. Like, I'll keep a million for myself or something, but I'll give the rest to charity. And he said, are you really serious about this? Like, you're absolutely 100% not changing your mind. And I said, yeah. He said, okay, so if that's true, what we can do, we can structure the deal. So you give the company to charity now. Don't give the 22 million to charity. Give the company to charity. And so when the purchasing company buys the, the company, they're buying it from a charitable trust. And that way, the entire $22 million goes to charity. Instead of you getting $22 million cash, paying $7 million tax, and having $15 million left to give it to charity, give the entire $22 million to charity. Put the company into a charitable trust and have the charitable trust sell the company. So that's what I did. So it meant the entire $22 million went to charity instead of you know, two thirds of it. Interesting. It's, um, it's a super cool approach for people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a couple of people, since I, like I said, I was never going to announce this, but since it was out there, I've gotten some calls from some people that are like selling their company or preparing to and, and email me to get the details on how to do that. So yeah, it's in the U S it's called a charitable remainder unit trust, but I think every country probably has their own version of this. Yeah. So it's a nice way to structure a deal. If you know that you don't actually need the money, then you just give it to charity in advance or give the company to charity. And then to me, it also had a psychological benefit. I knew some rich people that were anti-role models for me, people that because they had 50 million in the bank, they would blow it in stupid ways. And I just never wanted to be one of those people. So I thought it would be better to keep the money out of my hands and make it so that the 22 million never touched my hands, you know? It's cool. I don't want to stay too long on that because it is also I don't one of those uncomfortable topics. <laughs> what, what, no, I don't. I'm not. I'm comfortable with anything. Whatever your uh, audience finds interesting, I'm here to have. You know, happy to talk about. Let's talk evolution of music. First of all, it's, it's interesting. It's sold, and you guys were doing. It, I want to say I saw you guys did like a hundred million in revenue and sold for twenty two million, something like that. I don't know. It's yeah. it was a strategic mm-hmm. purchase. The company who bought CD Baby at the time was like a CD manufacturing company. So they had their evolution. They had pressed like 78s and LPs and then cassettes and eight tracks and CDs and DVDs. And now what? Like their entire business was based on manufacturing physical products. And so they bought CD Baby as a strategic purchase, not, you know, just looking at the asset value. So evolution of the music industry today, all the indies are on Spotify and YouTube. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Um, You know, we're here at 
talking disruptors, I, I think it's sometimes you catch yourself not thinking clearly. Sometimes you realize that you've lost perspective in life. Whenever I hear people, um, you know, talk too much about politics or too much about blockchain or too much about something, it feels like they might have lost perspective on reality. So in 2008, when I, my like last year CD Baby, I felt like I had lost perspective on the music business. I was so in my world of the musicians I knew in CD Baby that I was doing that thing that I hate when, if you ever go to a conference and somebody says, uh, the, you put experts on a panel and the moderator says, what is the future of the music industry? And if somebody's uh, business is selling video subscriptions, they'll say video subscriptions are the future of the music industry. And somebody else's business is, you know, selling downloads. They'll say selling downloads. That's the future of the music industry. Everybody gets full of shit based on their incentives. Like they want to believe the thing they're incentivized to believe. Right. So catching myself thinking in a cloudy way made me decide to just intentionally ignore the entire subject of the music industry for the next X number of years. So I'm still completely ignoring the music industry. I haven't tried Spotify yet. We haven't done any good music since the 90s. It's all good. (laughs) I'm intentionally ignorant. I'm, I'm unlearning the subject of the music industry. And someday I'll decide to get back into it. And then I'll have a fresh perspective without thinking I know anything. I like it. Today's episode is brought to you guys by my 15-step guide to scalable, Series A-worthy growth and marketing. If you're building a startup aiming for a billion-dollar outcome or a solopreneur looking for a sustainable six-, seven-, or eight-figure business, get my free guide, which you can grab at mattward.io slash free, which walks you through the best, most proven tactics to acquire and retain customers, applicable for freelancers up to Fortune 500. If you want to grab that, plus bonus hacks and tips to build your business and more, visit mattward.io slash free. And if you need help or ever want to grow your business faster, I coach a handful of hardcore winners building businesses I believe in. You can reach out right on the site, mattward.io for more. And now let's get on with the episode. Don't overcome it. Uh, Dive into it. Question it. I don't, I I think a lot of people, a lot of people ask me questions like, how can I overcome my fear at starting my own business? I say, no, don't overcome it. Like you should heed that fear. (laughs) That's, that's a really good fear. You shouldn't ignore that. You shouldn't plug your ears and try to find a way to ignore it. I think it's better to address the things that are bothering you instead of trying to uh, leap over them, you know? So yeah, I dive into it when I'm scared of something. uh, I dive into it and find out why if something's getting me down. I dive into it. I uh, I spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time journaling, sometimes hours a day. If I'm making uh, life decisions, I'll, I'm known to spend three to five hours a day just writing in my diary for days or months on end. So I think a, a lot of reflection. I think a, I think some of what I've learned has in life has come from input, but most of what I've learned in life has come from reflection. It has to be because... All of input is really just your filters on what you're seeing anyway. So it's kind of you're reflecting on what you're seeing instantaneously. Right. But, you know, the whole concept of speed reading or people reading a ton of books, I think, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's better to read less books and spend more time reflecting on everything you've taken in. Ask yourself questions about it. Go through it twice. Question if that's really true. Question how it applies to you. 
look at each little thing that you've taken in if you think it has value and find ways to apply it to your life. I would agree and disagree. I think that's true on a bigger picture side of things. But if you had the opportunity to listen to three different podcasts that were kind of execution, marketing, sale, things that were more action oriented, I think you're better off getting more and synthesizing it versus the the less is more approach, I think only works when you're dealing with big picture thinking and ideas, because otherwise you're kind of don't need it. Good point. Good distinction. Yeah, I like that. So I wanted to talk... CD Baby had no money and you had no idea what you were doing. And now you think that that's kind of a good thing. The advantages of no funding versus venture capital. Yeah. Again, I don't claim to be any kind of guru or expert on startups. I was really, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. You meaning you matter, anybody listening, where you get incorrectly categorized. So I told you my history. I was a musician selling my CD and then my stupid little hobby took off against you know, even though I didn't want it to. And so when I sold the company and word got out that I had sold, people kind of put me into this category of tech entrepreneur and then wanted me to start uh, opining <laughs> on on advice for other startups and how to do their thing. And I just think that after I think I fell into it for about a year and I said, wait a minute, I don't I don't like these other entrepreneurs. I don't, my friends are not investors. I never had investors. I've never invested in anything. This, this whole world that people seem to think is the world of entrepreneurs and startups, it seems to be a, a lot about like the world of investors, but I never did that. And so when I'd get into conversations with other entrepreneurs, they were often talking about their second round of angel, blah, 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 on my series A. And I didn't even know what they were on about. I don't even know what those terms mean. And I still don't. So I realized, I think it was incorrectly categorized that I don't have any insights into startups and maybe not even into entrepreneurship. But as a musician that started a little thing, all I can talk about is my my story. Like, that's all I know is just what happened to me. So in, in my little world, in case that story is useful to somebody, I found that not having any investors and not looking for investors was a competitive advantage because... I started the company with $500 and it was profitable in its second month. You know, I lost money the first month and the second month it earned more than $500. So I was profitable ever since. And so every single month was profitable. And I just kept it on that basis. And when people would ask me if I wanted to spend money advertising or promoting, I'd think, well, I'm only going to spend $1,000 if it's going to earn me $2,000 next month. Like I'm, I'm not just going to do this you know, what do you call it? Um, Brand advertising, where I just throw a thousands of dollars at something in hopes of getting my name out. You know, no, I needed an immediate return. And same thing with, you know, I'm not going to buy a thousand dollar chair unless somehow that's going to earn me $2,000 next month, which a chair never will. So instead, I just would use folding chairs and get a plank of wood on some cinder blocks as a desk and things like that. So I, there are a lot of ways that you got to remember, this was like the first dot-com boom of 1997 through 2000. People would have poured money on you if, if you wanted. Yeah. And they asked, in fact, I just, I taught customer service, like just if anybody calls about investing, just tell them, no, don't even send it to me. Same thing with people wanting to buy the company. For 10 years, I had people wanting to buy the company. I just told customer service to just shoo them away. Um, I'm not interested. But point is, I saw a lot of friends who did get investment blow way too much money, almost like that kind of, you know, the jokes where you hear that the the military spends $50,000 on a toilet seat, right? I saw startups doing that kind of stuff, spending 
a hundred times more than they needed to on things just because they had it. So I think not having it makes you lean and smart. Where'd you get that philosophy from? Because you seem relatively minimalist now. It seems like something that's a part of your life. And yet most musicians start kind of broke. And if they become successful, I mean, we, we've all seen that the snorting lines and the 28 club and all the good stuff. One of it was a, part of it was a side effect of moving a lot. Why'd you move I moved. Well, I moved many times. Just I moved in New York City twice, and I moved to upstate New York to Woodstock, then I moved to Portland. And every time I would, I would bring all of my stuff with me. And after doing that a bunch of times, um, especially here, here's my recipe for how to be a minimalist, is put everything you own into storage temporarily, and then uh, after a few years of not needing it, realize you don't actually need it. So um, that's, yeah, I moved too many times. When I first moved to Portland, Oregon, CD Baby was just in full swing. I was so busy with it. So I took all of my stuff from my house in New York. I put it into storage, intending to come back to it a month or two later when I found a home to move into. But I never did find a home to move into. I was like staying at my grandmother's guest room. And life was so busy that like four years went by and all that stuff was still in storage. So after four years, I thought, well, if I haven't used it in four years, I'm probably not going to use it in the next 40 years. So I just gave a surprise bonus to my 85 employees. I said, okay, everybody, I'm opening up my um, storage space. Everybody go take one thing that you want. And so, you know, somebody took my guitar, somebody took my keyboard, somebody took my speakers, somebody took my mixing board, uh, just gave away everything I had to my employees. Talk about getting uh, I personal. Like, I imagine you got some major bumps in employee excitement over that. I, I wish. <laughs> you wish. No, people, no, people, in, you know, people get entitled. I learned the uh, learned the hard way that if you want to give people a present, you don't give them too much up front and then less later. You have to gift to give incremental improvements. People look at the trajectory. They don't look at the total amount they've received. They look at the trajectory of how it compares to what they've received before. So I made that mistake by being too nice up front. Um, and how it instead compares of, to others. You're making 100K, yeah. but the next guy's making 120. Wait a sec. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Travel. Anyway, sorry. I feel like we, we've taken some some tangents here, but yeah, minimalism is. Um, so that's how it began to me. That's how it began getting rid of things physically. But then I just found that, like, as a life approach, the less you have, the less you do, the less you say yes to. I mean, you know, the starting question you asked me about fuck yeah or no. The less you say yes to, the simpler life is. The faster it is. The faster you can change the more peaceful it is. I think that I think about this metaphor of of food and energy, right? Like, I don't know if you do this thing where if you're feeling really low energy, you think I should get something to eat to give me energy. But if you do that too much, well, then you get fat and then it defeats the whole purpose because now you have even less energy because you've been eating too much. So the problem you were hoping to solve has just become worse. So I think people do that with stuff or even activities that they say yes to, like commitments they say yes to. They think, my life is a little boring. I want more stimulation. I need some excitement. And they say, ooh, look, a new thing came out. I need that new thing. And so they, yes, they say yes to the new thing, or they say, ooh, look, there's a new subject I can dive into, a new thing I can learn about and get into this new hobby. And so they say yes to that. They say yes to commitments. They say yes to events. And pretty soon, their life becomes too heavy. And now you've got, you've taken on too much. You've got too much burden. You've said yes to too many things. You have too many things. You're less mobile. And then I think that that drains your energy, which is the very thing that you were hoping to 
to solve, to get more of, is to get some stimulation. So instead, I just found that minimalism all the way through, uh, whether it's stuff, whether it's commitments, even your identity, keeping your identity as small as possible, like how you define yourself. If you have a whole bunch of titles, you know, like I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an investor, I'm a tech, I'm a this and that, the more titles uh, and identity labels you give yourself, the more you're burdened by them. And then even programming wise, you know, I, I like to I like to write my own code and I do everything by hand. I don't use frameworks. I don't use um, software packages to write code. I just open up a simple text editor and I write everything by hand. So even tech wise, like I don't write a single line of code unless that line of code really needs to be there. And that's why if you go to my website, it's so damn fast because, you know, I wrote every line by hand and I wouldn't write a line, line I didn't need to write. And she's just, yeah, this minimalism all the way through my life. Uh, makes me so happy. Uh, even, you know, I'm talking to you from this little cottage in Oxford, England right now. And when people come over to my house, they walk in and they say, do you live here? That was a question. <laughs> do you live there? Is it a vacation? What's the story? Oh, no, I live here now. Yeah, I live here. I am a legal resident of the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, my, my little house here um, has nothing in it. And people come visit and they think, have you moved in yet? I say, yep, this is, this is all I got. This is just how I like to live. It makes me happy. I will clarify slightly harder with kids, but I definitely struggle with the whole what to, to fo what to focus on personally. I know a lot of entrepreneurs do. There's so many different opportunities. How do you decide? You say no to everything, absolutely everything. And then only the thing that you find that you can't not do is the one thing you should do. But granted, this is this is my strategy for me in my situation in my life where I'm already well-known I'm already rich. I'm already whatever. You have way too many people asking for stuff. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, one of your questions you send to every interviewee is like, if you were 18 today, what would you do and why? That would be a different strategy. I wouldn't recommend saying no to everything if you're 18. What would you recommend? Doing everything? Um, no, actually. Okay. So I thought about this before our call. My advice to an 18-year-old would actually be to master one thing, anything. It can just getting great at any one thing teaches you how to focus, teaches you how to teaches you the skill of mastery of anything so that you're not a shallow dabbler. So for me it was sp music, uh, specifically playing guitar. Like when I was 18, I was a great guitarist. I was like into that kind of like speed metal thing. I was like, my fingers were incredibly fast on a fretboard. But just that skill of mastering guitar taught me how to learn. There's a great saying from a jazz musician that said, if you can learn music, you can learn anything. But I think that that applies to almost anything that you could master. If you learn to master anything, then you're, you're learning how to master anything, right? So it teaches you the opposite of FOMO, which I think is POMO, right? Like proud of missing out. It teaches you how to pride yourself on saying no to everything else, which is the path of mastery. Now, the opposite of the mastery path is to be a dabbler, where you do, you just do everything for the first exciting week, and then you try something else. But I think if an 18-year-old today, I would pick anything that seemed interesting, even if it's a specific little niche thing, like the web RTC technology, or whatever it may be, and then dive into it completely, get known in that field, um, and do it for many, many years, not just from your uh, bedroom in Cincinnati uh, and taking it as far as YouTube can take it and then calling it a day. But I mean, like actually seeking out, like once you get to a certain level of expertise, finding the people that are 
the absolute masters at this, whether they're in, you know, London or LA or wherever, and learn from them. Like, even if it means that you need to move to that city to learn from the masters and get even deeper into this expertise, then say you do this for a number of years, like you've been doing it for five years or 10 years, when you feel that you've mastered this and you've taken it as far as you want to take it, then strategically, you can make a sideways leap into another subject. I think of the the metaphor of a pole, right? Like you've climbed one pole very high. And now when you want to switch to another field, you don't go back down to the ground and begin again. You leap sideways onto another pole, um, make a sideways jump to another field. That would be my advice for an 18-year-old. I think that's pretty solid advice. And human beings, competitive advantage. AI is coming, robotics. Which of those niches do we avoid? Which do we steer clear of? Tell me a little bit more about this thought process. Okay. Well, the way that you, if you don't, I don't, I think this is the same question you're asking. Before I interview, you emailed that question asking what tech or what technology or trend am I most worried about? So is this kind of the question you're asking or should we talk about that? Kind of. I know you're big on the importance of human beings being the uh, advantage. that okay um and yet some of that will be changing so how do you think about that okay the human the competitiveness uh, the competitive advantage of using human labor is that i feel that you know the year is not 2500 yet <laughs> we're still in 2020 and but everybody's so focused on trying to uh be the next uh robotics genius and beat the game that a lot of people ignore the basic they ignore things that can be done by a human right now in the name of continuing to program and try to develop some ultimate machine learning way of doing things. And because of this, for example, they they start these uh, software companies that don't pick up the phone because they say, no, 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 no. I'm going to automate all of this. I'm going to get voice recognition. So people will call and they'll say into the voice recognition system what they want. And my machine learning voice recognition system will route them to the current way. And I think, yeah, or, you know, for $15 an hour. You can have somebody pick up the phone on the first ring. And doing that makes a brand loyalty that a thousand hours of machine learning can't. And I found this out not through um, hypothetical theory, but in practice, when I would be out at conferences meeting my clients and I would hear musicians tell other musicians why they like CD Baby, you know, unprompted, just I would hear like this musician over here is talking to this musician who's not on CD Baby. And the number one thing, the number one reason why they said they loved CD Baby totally blew me away. It wasn't my prices. It wasn't my site. It wasn't my service. It was basically, oh, dude, you should sign up with CD Baby. You know why? They answer the phone. You can contact them. Anything's wrong, you pick up the phone and they pick up on the first ring and they say CD Baby. There's no voicemail system. There's no writing. Like, you can reach them. And this is the owner right here. And you can email him and he replies. That's why I'm with CD Baby. So all these other things didn't matter. In fact, I didn't even mention in my history, but only two years after I started CD Baby, Amazon launched the exact same service. So now your choice as a musician was you could either sell your music through CD Baby or Amazon. And we beat their ass. We won. People chose musicians, independent musicians chose CD Baby over Amazon almost every time because we had customer service. You, you could call us and uh, we'd pick up the phone. You could email the owner and I would reply. So um, that's what I meant about the the competitiveness of human labor. Also, there's a cute little story uh, 
on this is that also about a year or two after I started, one of these overfunded San Francisco companies was trying to make uh, music algorithms to recommend, you know, if you like this song, you'll like that song. And the stuff, you know, has advanced a lot in the last 18 years. But at the time, they were working very, very hard and spending tons of money to try to make this recommendation software. And apparently they had checked out a lot of competition. And when they came to CD Baby, they were blown away by the quality of the recommendations. So they asked if we could have some meeting. We They flew from San Francisco to New York City. I went down to New York. We met in some restaurant and they did this kind of, you know, bullshitty chit chat for a while. And I was just like, OK, get to the point. What do you want? And so finally, after like 45 minutes, they said, OK, look, we've been trying to make the ultimate recommendation engine. And, you know, we've checked out the competition and whatever software you're using there at CD Baby just blows us away. My God, your recommendations are the best in the industry. You know, how are you doing this? <laughs> I said, doing what? They said, how are you recommending that customers you know, get this music if they like that music? And I said, well, I just listen to it. I was like, what do you mean? I said, I listen to everything that comes in. I keep some private notes. And I, with my memory and my notes, I say, if you like this, you'll like that. And they looked confused. And they said, well, how will that scale? What if you start getting 100 new albums a day? And I said, well, then I'll hire another person to help me do this. What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like so confused by my answer. And sure enough, I did start getting 100 albums a day. And pretty soon it was two people's full time job to listen to everything that came in, make private notes and recommend this music if you like this. And that was it. I never did spend millions programming some software. I spent, you know, thousands paying some people. We still have the world's most powerful neural net right in our heads. And we just don't know how right. it works. Right. <laughs> it, is, it is crazy. And so many people on this podcast don't think about that. And I'm glad yeah, well, you brought it up. I mean, I, I see that with a lot of, I mean, sorry, you know, they've they mentioned the customer service aspect first, because I do meet a lot of programmer nerds. I mean, I'm a programmer myself. I love talking to my fellow programmers. But what's funny is when they start a company, they think that technology is the solution to everything. And they're selling B2C or even B2B. It's like service matters so, so much. People choose one company over another based on a single thing like getting a human reply instantly or somebody picking up the phone. These are the things that make people choose one company over another, not the fact that you've gone serverless and are using parallel functional programming on the back end. Nobody cares about that. You care, but your customers don't. So, yeah. yeah I have a Facebook. My, my account's not working. I can't access it. And there's no... <laughs> Absolutely no way. You can't even submit a customer service support if you can't log in because you're not logged in. Yeah, it's um, yeah. that's a whole nother can of worms. What uh, what technology or trend are you most excited about and why? Most excited about? Um, I'm not. I just moved here from New Zealand. How old are your kids? Or one kid? Two kids? Two. Oh, okay. When my kid was born, he's eight next month. When he was born, I moved to New Zealand to be a full time dad for five years, which I did because John Lennon did. I remember reading that story that John Lennon like said. A true that, musician. Well, apparently, you know, John Lennon had his first kid, Julian, at the height of Beatlemania and completely ignored him and he regretted it. So when his second kid, Sean, was born, he said, I'm going to take five years off. And he just told his agent, you know, no to everything. I'm, I'm off the grid for five years. And from 75 to 80, he was a full time dad. And I remember just seeing that in the 80s as a teenager and thinking like, if I ever have a kid, that's what I'm going to do. Like, if my, once my kid's born, like especially those first five years are really crucial. I'm just going to be a full-time dad. So that's what I did. I, he was born and we moved to New Zealand and I was mostly a full-time dad for six years. And 
we spent most of our time just outside in nature, just playing in forests and beaches and climbing on the rocks and feet in the river, hands in the mud, you know. And it's funny that that was most of my life for the last six years was being out in nature, which is timeless. I'd be playing with my kid in the middle of nowhere with nothing and nobody around and the waves crashing on the rocks and the birds chirping in the trees. And at the end of the day, I would like turn on the computer again. And I'd always like, I wouldn't bring my phone or anything. It's just me and him in nature, just, just being focused. And at the end of the day, he'd go to sleep. I'd turn on the computer and it would be like, you know, Trump said this, the blockchain. I just go, no, this, none of this is real. Like the, to me, the real world is the physical world and my kid and my life. So I just turn it off again and things come and go. I'm not a geologist, but I started to appreciate the way that a geologist would see the world. You know, like if you're a geologist, mountains seem liquid to you and you, a thousand years becomes your unit of time. So what's going on like this year, the little flash in the pan that's going to happen for a year or two just feels like, you know, a, a little firecracker going off. So yeah, I'm getting a little preachy, but I mean, it shaped how I see the world. So I like that. Um. I forget the name of it. There's there's a there's a name to some principle or law like Ziff's law or something like that that says that the longer a technology has been around, the longer it's likely to be around. Do you remember the name of that? No, I know what you're um, talking about, but I'm not sure the name. They used it for Broadway shows too. They found out like the longer a Broadway musical has been running, the longer it's likely to stay open. So I think of that when it comes to technologies, when I think of like what I'm what technologies I'm going to focus my precious time on. I tend to folk, I'd rather go deeper on the, the ones that are likely to be around the longest. I'd rather learn, programming-wise, I'd rather learn C, SQL, and Lisp instead of the language that was invented this year. Because my time invested into the timeless ones will probably, they'll probably be, continue to be around for the rest of my life. Or as a technology that just launched this year, there are enough people looking at that. I'm kind of, I can be kind of competitive too. So I think of this in terms of competitive advantage that feel like everyone else is focused on current events. So I don't need to be. It's my competitive advantage to only read books and not read the news. If when Trump, everybody if Trump launches a missile and the world's about to end, someone will tell you, but otherwise somebody, it's totally exactly, fine. Exactly. Anything short of that, I really don't need to know. And I think of it as I, you don't have to participate in their game. The game that everyone else plays, you don't even have to play that game. You can just happily thrive in a timeless profession. Like we tend to think that, I think a lot of people have this anxiety of the future and they think, well, I want to be ahead of the game, man. I'm going to master AI and machine learning. Nothing's going to get by me. I'm going to, I'm going to master blockchain inventions, you know, in, uh, innovations now so that nothing surprises me. But you, some things are timeless, like food, clothing, shelter. These are things that that beings will always need. And so you can have a, a wonderful life by mastering the art of chocolate and starting a damn good business that makes great chocolate. And you're going to have enough money. You're going to be happy. You won't need to anxiously read the news every day to see if there's some brand new invention. And if you don't like the idea of chocolate, you know, you make great tofu or you make great shoes or you make great wool clothing. Or, you know, we talked earlier about the the advantage of the service mindset, focusing on customer service uh, as your competitive advantage, not your back-end technology. I think of service things that are timeless, like entertaining, educating, even excavating. Somebody's, you know, somebody's going to be digging holes, <laughs> um, waste management. 
So yeah, people always need to be entertained. People always need to be educated. You can master any one of these disciplines that doesn't require you to chase every brand new little magpie shiny thing that comes up this year. And I think that you'll have a competitive advantage for doing so because it feels like everybody else is doing the magpie thing and chasing every brand new shiny thing that comes along. And your competitive advantage then is to not, is to not play their game. I don't know if there's going to be a possibly better way to start to end the interview. That's a great, that's a great spot to, to start to wrap things up. I got it. Do you want to ask me about the most valuable advice I ever received? Oh, yes. Let's go for the most valuable <laughs> advice. Either you can give it or you can tell it. Well, because I, uh, I'm glad that you emailed that question because it got me thinking about it. And I ended up thinking about it for an hour or two because, I don't know. Actually, let me ask you one quick question before we do. Go for it. You've asked that question to a lot of your guests, right? Mm -hmm. Do they usually narrow it down to one thing? Some of them do. Some of them don't. Usually it's one, two, or a, a theme. A lot of them do, though. But people also like to have an answer, so it's hard. <laughs> but isn't if you had to narrow it down to one thing or two, wouldn't it be so general as to be almost useless? It would be unless you were speaking to a general audience. Huh. Okay. Because after, I mean, I, th I thought about it for a while and I realized that there's not, advice almost needs a target, right? It, it's, it, <laughs> some weirdo asked me uh, the stupidest new age question I've ever heard, which he, he looked at me very seriously and said, I want to ask you a very serious question. I said, okay. And he hit record on his recorder and he said, how do you love? And I said, well, careful. What? I was like, well, love what? I was like, what a stupid question. Like it needs a target. How do I love nature? How do I love my kid? How do I love Miles Davis? What the fuck are you asking? Like, it, that's, that's a verb that requires an object to its verbness. Um, so I was thinking about this question about the most valuable advice ever received. And it's like, well, advice about what? I mean, we can't just assume everybody just wants to make money or get famous. So I wrote down a few for you. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> The most valuable advice I ever received about investing is to set it and forget it and just rebalance five minutes a year. When Fidelity went and analyzed all their client portfolios to see whose were performing the best and what they had in common, at the end, they found out the best performing Fidelity customers were the people who forgot that they had accounts there. <laughs> and so they hadn't even logged in in 20 years. Those were the, the best performing accounts, outperformed the active managers by far. Most valuable sex advice ever received was when the person you're with tells you exactly what feels good, specifically, and why. Best parenting advice ever received is that kids communicate by playing. You can't ask them a question and get a direct answer. Play is how they communicate. Best marketing advice I ever received is that marketing just means being considerate. Marketing doesn't mean blasting or spamming or advertising. Marketing is a business being considerate. That's that marketing. Seth Godin? Sounds, uh, sounds pretty similar to Seth. It's, it's very Sethy, <laughs> but but not just him. Actually, Harry Beckwith. Harry Beckwith is the underrated predecessor to Seth Godin. If you can find Harry Beckwith books, like Selling the Invisible, and he has about four or five of them, fucking brilliant, but almost nobody knows him. Best love advice I've received is uh, uh, my first great relationship, like taught me how to be honest and not play games. Best programming advice was to learn the language, not the framework, to write code by hand and don't repeat yourself. Uh, best writing advice is to write like you talk, but more succinctly. Uh, best life choice advice is it change is good unless you're on the path of mastery. 
If you're on the mastery path, stick with it. Oh, but any other time, thank you. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, change is good. Uh, Whatever scares you, go do it. Most valuable advice on taking compliments. A famous musician told me that people always come up to him after the show giving him a compliment. And the best lesson learned is you just say thank you. You never deny a compliment because that's insulting. It's scary when somebody gets up to give you a compliment. It's vulnerable. So if somebody gives you a compliment, you just say thank you, and then you turn the subject back to them. Best advice ever received on romance is to be meta-considerate, to let someone pursue you, aspire you, and desire you. Don't put them on a pedestal, because if you put somebody up on a pedestal, you're making them look down on you, which is meta-inconsiderate. Best advice on hiring is to let your existing staff recommend their friends because people like working with people they like more than anything. Anyway, I wrote down a bunch of those and after we did, an hour we just I got said rid of, we just stop. got rid of we don't need any of Tim Ferriss's books anymore. This pretty much just handled <laughs> all of it. The best advice for everything. There's, there's <laughs> yeah, a, a, I like Thanks it. for asking me that question though. It was really fun to uh I like I had a fun hour sitting there thinking about the different best advice I've ever received. Because yeah, the best advice you've ever received about sex is different than the investing advice, hopefully. I think that should be a blog post on your site. <laughs> it, uh, it looks sounds like you've already done most of the grunt work for that one. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today, Derek. That, Thanks. This has been an interesting, fun one that's gone everywhere. And I think going everywhere while also coming back to that, having somewhere, the specific minimal somewhere of mastery is very important for people, especially for me to hear right now. So Derek, where can people find you, learn more about you and what you do? Well, the reason I do these interviews is because I like the people that I meet when I do them. So I always say, like, if you made it all the way to the end of this, go to my website, go to Sivers.org, and I put my email address in a big font there, and I actually reply to every email. So introduce yourself, ask me anything, uh, send me an email through Sivers.org. Just make sure there's not a question, because it's always everything's a no. You got (laughs) to remember what we talked about, guys. (laughs) Thanks for coming on today, Derek. This has been a fun one. Thank you. And guys, thanks for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this, disruptors.fm slash iTunes, leave a review, share it around. And if you're interested, got a couple sci-fi books coming out. You guys can get on the advanced reader list. Some people get free copies, help with reviews, help with all of the good stuff that it goes down into making a book a success. mattward.io slash book. Just add your details. Till next time, cheers and go cut something out of your life. I've got to go do the same. Shipping and mailing products from your desk has never been simpler than with SendPro Online by Pitney Bowes. With SendPro Online, it's just click, send, and save for as little as $4.99 a month. That's $4.99 a month. Send envelopes, flats, and packages right from your desk, right from your office, wherever that may be, and you're in business in no time. And for being a syndicate listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial just to get started and a free 10-pound scale to make sure you never overpay. I've overpaid on shipping. I'm sure you have as well. Go to pb.com angel to get this special offer, plus the free 30-day trial and free 10-pound scale. Again, that's pb.com angel. Experience shipping made simple. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.